Hello, this is Dr. Pingxin Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. I'm summarizing the February 2022 issue of the journal. The first article is Alcohol Consumption and Risk of Ventricular Arrhythmias and Sudden Cardiac Death in an Observational Study of 408,000 Individuals. The authors studied 408,000 middle-aged individuals over a median follow-up of 11.5 years. No association with total alcohol consumption was observed with ventricular arrhythmias, whereas a U-shaped association was present for sudden cardiac death. The next article is titled The Sinus Rhythm and QRS Amplitude and Fractionation in Patients with Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy to Identify Ventricular Tachycardia Substrate and Location. The authors compared the patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and VT with electroanatomic mapping septal or free wall VT substrate to a 38-patient reference cohort with cardiac MRI. They found that in LV non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, low frontal plane QRS less than 0.55 millivolt in AVF is associated with VT substrate. Although multi-lead QRS fractionation is associated with the presence and the location of VT substrate, it is frequently identified in patients without VT with cardiac MRI abnormalities. Next up is quality of life after initial treatment of atrial fibrillation with cryoablation versus drug therapy. In total, 203 subjects received either cryoballoon ablation or antiarrhythmic drug therapy. The authors found that clinically meaningful improvement of AFEQT quality of life summary score from baseline to 12 months was observed in 96% or 100 of patients in cryoballoon ablation arm and 72.2% or 71 of patients in the antiarrhythmic drug therapy arm. The authors conclude that the first-line cryo-balloon ablation versus antiarrhythmic drug therapy is associated with larger improvement in AF-specific quality of life and a higher rate of symptom resolution. Coming up is implantation of cardiac electronic devices in active COVID-19 patients. Results from an international survey. 53 centers from 13 countries across four continents provided information on 166 patients with known active COVID-19 who underwent a CIED procedure. They found that the CIED procedure rates during known active COVID-19 disease varied greatly from 0 to 16.2 per 1,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients worldwide. Patients with active COVID-19 infection who underwent CIED implantation had a high complication and mortality rates. Operators should take these risks into consideration before proceeding with CIED implantation in active COVID-19 patients. The next article is Trends in Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Programming Practices and its Impact on Therapies. Insights from a North American Remote Monitoring Registry 2007 to 2018. The authors performed a retrospective analysis of patients with ICD implanted from 2007 to 2018 
using de-identified Medtronic CareLink database. Among 210,000 patients, the proportion crammed to a rate cutoff greater than 188 beats per minute increased from 41% to 49%, and an NID of greater than 30 over 40 increased from 17 to 67% before May 2013 versus after February 2016. They conclude that despite evidence supporting the use of prolonged detection duration and high rate cutoff, implementation of shock reduction programming strategies in real-world clinical practice has been modest. The use of evidence-based ICD programming is associated with reduced ICD shocks over long follow-up period. Next up is a leadless pacemaker implant, anticoagulation status and outcomes. Results from the Micra Transcaster Pacing System Post-Approval Registry. The authors studied 1,795 patients with anticoagulation status available, including 585 not on anticoagulation, 795 had anticoagulation interrupted, and 415 had anticoagulation continued during Micra implant. They found that the implant success rate was similar for all groups at 99.1% at to 99.8%. The 30-day complication rates were similar among groups. The authors conclude that the implant of Micra seems to be safe and feasible regardless of an interrupted or continued periprocedural oral anticoagulation strategy with no increased risk of perforation or vascular complications. Next up is a filament C variant-associated cardiomyopathy, a pooled analysis of individual patient data to evaluate the clinical profile and the risk of sudden cardiac deaths. In a cohort of 270 gene-elusive arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy probands, 12 or 4.4% had mutations in filament C, FLNC variants, and 13 additional family members carried the same mutation. 18 FLNC variant carriers, or 72%, had a diagnosis of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. ECG low QRS voltages were detected in 37%, and T-wave inversion in infralateral or lateral leads in 24%. LV non-ischemic late gadolinium enhancement was found in 75%. Those who experienced sudden cardiac death more frequently had infralateral or lateral T-wave inversion and LV late gadolinium enhancement or fibrosis. The authors conclude that clinical phenotype of FLNC cardiomyopathies is characterized by late-onset presentation and typical ECG and CMR features. The next article is an inherited sudden cardiac arrest syndrome may be based on primary myocardial autonomic nervous system abnormalities. A recently discovered sudden cardiac arrest syndrome is linked to a risk of haplotype that harbors the dipeptidyl peptidase 6, or DPP6 gene, as a plausible culprit. 
He also studied six risk haplotype carriers with previous ventricular fibrillation, eight carriers without BF, and seven non-carriers. They found that the carriers had longer interbeat intervals than controls. Lower low frequency, or LF, and higher high frequency, or HF, activity, and lower LF slash HF ratio in the supine position. Upon standing up, carriers had a significantly larger decrease in inherent uh, in interbeat interval and increased LF than controls. Symptomatic carriers had less heterogeneous 123IMIBG distribution in the LV than asymptomatic carriers. In conclusion, these data are consistent with more labile autonomic tone in carriers, suggesting that the primary abnormalities may reside in both the heart and the autonomic nervous system. The following article is fascicular heart block and the risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, results from a large primary care population. The authors studied 359,000 primary care patients, among them 13,636, or 3.8%, had any type of fascicular block. Patients were followed for up to 15.9 years. They found that higher degrees of fascicular blocks were associated with increased risk of uh, syncope, pacemaker implantation, and complete heart block but the association with death was negligible. Up next is identifying an appropriate endpoint for cryoablation in children with atrial ventricular nodal reentrant tachycardia. Is residual slow pathway conduction associated with recurrence? The authors performed a single-center retrospective analysis of pediatric patients following successful first-time cryoablation for AVNRT. Following ablation, 104 or 41% had some evidence of residual slow pathway conduction. With median follow-up time of 1.9 years, recurrence occurred in 14 patients or 5%. They found that the observed AVNRT recurrence rate after cryoablation was comparable to that of RF ablation. The presence of residual slow pathway conduction was not associated with recurrence. This suggests that jump or single echo bead may be an acceptable endpoint in AVN-RT cryoablation. Next up is the electrophysiological characteristics of atrial tachycardia recurrence. Relevance to castor ablation strategies in adults with congenital heart disease. At 299 procedures in 205 adults with congenital heart disease, or ACHD, 464 atrial tachycardias were targeted. Success was achieved in 98% of procedures. Over a median of three years of follow-up, 67 patients, or 27%, developed AT-AF recurrence after the index procedure. Repeat versus index tachycardias were more than uh, were more often focal AT, demonstrated longer cycle lengths, required isoproteranol, and involved the pulmonary venous atrium. 
with complete index procedure success and no AF history. Five-year actuarial freedom from ATAF and AT alone were 77% and 80%. These data support aggressive pharmacological provocation to eliminate all inducible tachycardias and coexisting pulmonary venous atrium substrates at index procedures for ACHD. The next article is Disruption of Protein Quality Control of the Human Either Agogo-Related Gene Potassium Channel Results in Profound Long QT Syndrome. The author's previous study of human either agogo-related gene, or HERG, encoded potassium channel KV11.1 supports an association between HERG and the ring finger protein 207 or RNF207 variants in aggravating the onset and the severity of long QT syndrome. However, the underlying mechanistic underpinning remains unknown. In the present study, the authors demonstrated that RNF207 serves as an E3 ubiquitin ligase and targets misfolded uh, HERC-T613M proteins for degradation, this ultimately resulting in decreased current density. This study established RNF207 as an interacting protein serving as a ubiquitin ligase for HERC-encoded potassium channel subunits. Normal function of RNF-207 is critical for the quality control of HERC subunits and consequently cardiac repolarization. Moreover, this study provides evidence for protein quality control as a new paradigm in life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias in patients with long QT syndrome. Coming up next is a governing equation for rotor and wavelet number in human clinical ventricular fibrillation, implications for sudden cardiac deaths. The authors previously developed a mathematical governing equation to study the population dynamics of atrial fibrillation. They now apply this equation to study human epicardial activations during ventricular fibrillation mapped during surgery. The equation accurately predicted average phase singularities and wavefront number and the population distribution. They conclude that the governing equation explains the number of wavelets and rotors observed, supporting a paradigm of VF based on statistical fibrillatory dynamics. The next paper is low-energy single-pulse surface stimulation defibrillates large mammalian ventricles. The authors hypothesized that targeting the excitable gap or reentry with low-energy surface stimulation is a less damaging and a painless alternative for ventricular defibrillation. They induced a VF and delivered low-energy surface stimulation with five electrodes that were 7 cm long and placed 1 to 2 cm apart on the endocardial and the epicardial surfaces of perfused peak LV. They found that defibrillation with low-energy single-pulse surface stimulation is feasible with energies below the human pain threshold. Optimal defibrillation occurs when arrhythmia complexity is minimal and the electrodes capture greater than 75% of the excitable gap. The final full-length article is rotors anchored by refractory islands 
drive torsata pond in an experimental model of electrical storm. A model of electrical storm was created by inducing chronic complete AV block in defibrillator implanted rabbits. Optical mapping revealed island-like regions with action potential duration or APD prolongation in the LV, leading to increased spatial ABD dispersion. The maximum ABD and its dispersion correlated with the total number of VF episodes in vivo. The neuronal sodium channel subunits NAV 1.8 was upregulated in electrical storm rabbit LV tissues and expressed within the myocardium corresponding to the island location. The authors conclude that a tissue island with enhanced refractoriness contributes to the generation of drifting rotors that underlies electrical storm in this model. NIV 1.8 mediated late sodium current merits further investigation as a contributor to the substrate for electrical storm. These full-length articles are followed by two research letters. The first one is titled Using Ambulatory Electrocardiogram Monitor to Record Skin Sympathetic Nerve Activity. The authors report that a small ambulatory ECG monitor with 1,000 Hz sampling rate can be used for simultaneous recording of ECG and skin sympathetic nerve activity. The second one is titled Post-Approval Safety Profile of Watchman Flex Left atrial appendage occlusion device, analysis from the MAUDE database. This study highlights the post-FDA approval real-world safety profile of the Watchman Flex device. The most commonly reported complication was device-related thrombosis, followed by pericardial effusion with or without tamponade and device migration. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Hot Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Peng Shen Chen.